Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse this evening. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan. And good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home this evening. Again, this program is designed around you as the listener, and we look forward to your interaction our first question for the night is a video that was sent in over the weekend by a listener here in Antigua, and they want to know, Pastor, what do you think about this video? And just a real quick description of the video, it is an interview between a Hispanic American and a white American talking about the immigration situation in the United States. Pastor, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is that... Um it could lead people to believe uh, and, and take one incident or one individual giving an opinion to um, um, slander uh, the U.S. by saying it's a racist country because of the comments the gentleman has made. This is an individual, and we've got to be careful we don't generalize um, what one individual is saying. I have said this repeatedly on this program. I don't think America is a racist country. I do think they have racist pockets within the country itself. So that's my, my general view of America. However, his fear seems to be the uh, the what is happening at the southern border and the invasion of all these Spanish people coming to America, not only Spanish, from all over the world. And he's afraid, afraid that um, if this continues, it would um, create a situation where um, the to be a displacement of what he calls the European content of the American population. In other words, he's concerned that um, over time um, the population might be such that there's no longer a majority white population and the ramification of that for losing political power and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so he is what I would call, consider to be a white nationalist. I wouldn't call him a white racist, but a white nationalist because he's concerned about keeping his country uh, a particular way. It's just like Antigua or any other Caribbean country. Uh, all of these Caribbean countries are black countries. Um, if we had an invasion of the uh, Chinese and there was a feeling that the Chinese would take over these islands, you're going to get the same kind of backlash. You've got to understand, you've got to be objective, reasonable, understand what is happening. I remember even in Barbados, um, I had a farmer friend uh, who told me this. He was used to employ a lot of the Guyanese, because a lot of Guyanese in Barbados. But he told me that when the immigration came, they would always take up the Indian Guyanese and send them back to Guyana, but they left the, the black Guyanese. 
that gave you an idea that the government, even in Barbados, was concerned about the, the constitution of the country that remained black, basically, than being invaded, because you do have a lot of that kind of situation. But this kind of thinking is not new. This kind of sentiment is not new. This is something that is as ancient as the Bible itself. As a matter of fact, the first indication of this kind of concern is found in the book of Exodus. If you look at Exodus chapter 1 and read from 7, verse 7 to 16, you'll see that um, even way back, uh, almost um, 4,000 years ago, there was still this kind of concern. Read Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 to 16. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and come to pass to the When there falleth out of any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithon and Ramses. That's the same same kind of thing. You've got the Israelis that migrated down to Egypt. They have prolific births. Uh, the nation is multiplying. By the time they leave Egypt, it's almost 2 million people that leaves with e- in Egypt. So the Egyptians become very concerned that these people who came in will take over. And they're fearful, so therefore they in- instituted a policy where, number one, they abused them, uh, put in, put in to do harsh, virtually uh, they enslaved them. And they told them to build cities, and they had to find even straw to build the cities. But the other thing is that they committed genocide. Later on in the chapter, you feel that Pharaoh gives an uh, order that any male child that is born, that he be thrown into the river and be destroyed. So you have that same kind of mindset. Here we are, we are the the, uh, Egyptians. We've got this foreign group who have come in. They seem to be growing so large, they're going to soon dominate. They might take over, and beside, they might join with somebody else and take over the country. That is the same type of sentiment that you have here in the, uh, that, in the video, that kind of a same type of, of, of concern. Now, I'm against any kind of racial rhetoric. Uh, but I, as I said before, this is not a sentiment that is new. It goes back way back in, in the scriptures. Now, the American experiment is to really create a democracy where people from all places, all races, could come to a country and be free uh, to enjoy liberty, justice, and happiness. That has been the American ideal. And, of course, um, it's a, a nation of immigrants, people coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, every year, I don't know if people know this, America allows one million legal immigrants in the country from all over the world. So it's not as though what is coming in the southern border has nothing to do with the normal immigration policy of America. Uh, and that is why I say to you that it cannot be charged as being a racist country because they're allowing a, a million people in every year from every part of the world. So that is why I have now, The other thing about this, I think that what's happening at the southern border, in my judgment, is crazy. I think it is stupid. I think it is dangerous. And if I was an American, I would be just as angry as any ordinary person if, if, if the uh, Gaston Brown administration allowed anybody, everybody to just flood into the country. There are no borders. There are no regulation. You don't know who's coming in. I don't think any Antiguan in his right mind would be for that. And I don't understand why any American in the right mind would be for what is happening 
for this kind of illegal immigration. It is very, very clear that the cartels control and they're making millions of dollars out of these people who have been paid to be transported, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Don't talk about the rapes that's going on. The terrorists that are coming across the border, they don't even know how many have come across as yet. I think that is going to play a big figure in the future, uh, that they're going to discover that they've made one of the biggest mistakes because these people are using that opportunity to come in. And don't forget, I forgot there were like 500,000 escapees that they don't even know where they are. Think about that for just a moment. How many terrorists have come in? And then, of course, child trafficking. It's a big, big thing that's going on across the border. And don't forget about the drugs that is coming across. I, I think it's like 70,000 Americans die every year because of the cross-border. Now, to my mind, if a politician in any Caribbean country would allow that kind of thing to happen, he would be out. Of, he'd, be, he'd be out. I don't think if any sensible person would elect a person like that. But America is a strange country, so I can't figure out why any um, government would allow that free flow of drugs into a country, killing about 70,000 people, your people every year, and nothing is basically done to, to stop that. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me, uh, quite frankly. A country that doesn't have secure borders is a failed country. And I think that's what is happening to America at this point in time. The other thing is, who pays for all of this thing when all of these people come into cost? I think the most five million already. Who pays for that? It's the taxpayers. So if you're paying taxes, you're working hard, and, and then they're taking the schools where your child should go to school, they can't uh, go to school, or they're using a stadium where you can't play your games now, and it, it uh, clogs up the hospital system. <laughs> What country, what nation, what people, when they see that the government seems to be more concerned about the um, the immigrant than about the citizen, would not be completely um, upset with, with the country. Um, so I, I, I understand the problem, but again, I don't like the, the white rhetoric that is being used, and I think that racism of any kind is, is evil. And uh, I think that um, love is a, vir- a virtue, and I think racism... Um, not I think it's it's an evil the answer uh, to immigration in America like immigration in the Caribbean is very simple I think immigrants should be vetted and prioritization should be given to the skills and talents that are needed to develop the country and expand the country's economy I don't think a free fall for anybody to enter your country without knowing who's coming in or whether they got some valuable contribution to make to your country should be allowed. I don't think Canada and uh, England have got very strict laws. You can't, you, if you if you got a skill or talent or you got a, uh, a particular um, ta- gift that can be used and beneficial to that country, you pretty much can get in. But if you don't have any skill or talent that is beneficial to the country, you can't get in. I think that kind of policy is what we would, should have in the Caribbean. Uh, I just don't think uh, just opening the borders to anybody to come. I think that's a, a gross mistake. And remember that it's character, not color, that should inform immigration policy as well. That is my view on the matter. I just think that uh, what I was concerned about is that somebody using this one individual and then to generalize that this is how all Americans think and therefore they're racist. I think that's the, the, what the, the media does. And I think it is wrong. I think it is evil. And because I don't see it that way. I've lived there for four years. I've lived in areas. I've worked in black areas, white areas, whatever it is. And I did not get the impression that it is a, it, you have pockets of it, no question about that. But why, if the America is a racist country, why is everybody trying to get to America? 
I mean, that defeats the argument almost immediately. Um, but that's my, my um, view on the video, uh, for whatever it is worth. Uh, but I do feel that um, there's a problem there. I think the problem can be solved, and I think it needs political will to solve the problem. But it must be done what's in the best interest of the country. Any country must do what's in the best interest of that country, and I think that's what America should do. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that video. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.44. You're listening to That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we look forward to your interaction. You can call and ask your question live on the air by dialing one 268 462-7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. We have a WhatsApp question that has come in for you, Pastor. Pastor Murphy, how can Christian entrepreneurs navigate through the relationship that they are bound to be formed with unsaved clients over time? I'm struggling with knowing how to set professional boundaries that still allow room for me to care for their souls and share the message of the gospel. I am hedging between a need to share the gospel in a useful way to the listener and a need to share it in a timely manner so that I don't share too often or too soon or miss the opportunities to share. Can you help me with this one with some practical guidelines? Well, I wish I'd received it before. I just got it as soon as I got in here, but I I did jot down a few concepts here. And I would like to say I want to commend you uh, for being a Christian um, businessman and uh, trying to maintain good, solid biblical principles while operating within the secular framework. I think that is highly commendable, and um, it's, it's just encouraging to know that there are business people who still think Christianly and want to integrate their Christian faith into the business sector. Um, I just want to offer a few suggestions here. I think that if you're going to go into an agreement with anybody, or a contract, whatever it is, um, I think um, as a Christian, you should let that person know up front that you are a believer, and that this faith informs the, the, the totality of your life, including your business practices. So I think that is something that should be known. Listen, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Um, I have certain ethical standards that I can't, I will not violate. Uh, I think it's good to let them per, that person know that that um, you integrate your Christian life into the Christian faith, uh, into, into your into your workplace. The other thing is, I think you need to have a code of ethics. I don't know if you've got business ethics, you've got a code, but you can go online and you can see, uh, get you know, don't reinvent the the the, the wheel. But you should have a code of ethics that you could probably um, present that to the person that you're trying to make a contract with or a business deal with. Uh, you want to uh, go into some kind of a, a agreement with him and let him know that this is your code of ethics. So he knows up front uh, what to expect from you. The third thing is that um, try to be professional in all that you do. Have very high standards. Avoid sloppiness. And above all, if you're dealing with somebody overseas, avoid lateness. Caribbean people have a weakness for time. And if you're dealing with people uh, overseas who are uh, very, very professional when it comes to business, 
if they set an appointment for a certain time, they expect you to be there, not half an hour late, but sometimes even before then. So I think that uh, that kind of professionalism is, is needed in dealing with, with, with people. Um, the other thing is, is, is um, your own lifestyle in your interaction uh, with the person. Um, you know, if you're going somewhere, driving together, maybe going to the restaurant, uh, sitting down and eating, you know, are you eyeing the waitress? Uh, can he see you? You know, that says a lot. You might be talking Christianity with him, but he, he picks up a lot of things. Are you drinking beer, alcohol, that kind of thing with him? Uh, all of this sends a message. He can see your code of ethics. He can hear you talk. But if you're seeing everything you're doing contrary, that would hinder your capacity to actually get an opportunity to speak to him in regard to his faith. Um, the other thing is that um, as you get to know him and you're trying to reach him without trying to be aggressive and, and trying to push the Christianity on him, there are a lot of things that you can do, you know. For example, um, if you know his birthday, if you know the anniversary of his wife, if you know, um, is, is, he, is he getting married? Uh, does he have a, is he going to get in a child that's going to be born? Um, at those times, the anniversary of the business joint as well, you can buy gifts and include some kind of uh, Christian information. If you know that he's an atheist or something, you might want to, you know, give him a book on um, apologetics uh, as a gift. You know, uh, so you can think of ways that you can try to impact him by those kind of small ways of doing it uh, indirectly or congratulating that he got married or just got a new child. But again, you include some kind, some kind of Christian literature or something to try to along with whatever gift you're going to give him, and then timing. I think that um, you have to be asking the Lord and praying for the Lord's help to when to seize that opportune moment that's going to come. Um, there are times when you can force ripe a situation. I don't think that's what you should do as a believer, but ask the Lord to give you that moment, that, that opportunity, and that that you would recognize it when it does come. But I do think timing is important when it comes to that. The other thing is your relationship. Build a relationship first before you try to force your religion on him. Uh, but let it become a real, very personal relationship. We don't like people pushing things on us that we don't know too well. But we don't mind a person who is our friend, uh, even imposing a little bit on our um, boundaries, uh, if we feel that you know they are worthy of it because of the kind of relation that we have. And the other thing I would say to you is success, the blessing of success. Uh, just like Joseph, everything Joseph touched, there was blessing. And if you can be a successful businessman and you're you know you're serving the Lord and the Lord is blessing your business, uh, mention that in, in the conversation. Just don't mention it. We know we made so much improve on the, the, uh, the profit margins from the previous year. Uh, nothing wrong with saying praise the Lord. Nothing wrong with bringing God into the whole picture. So I think those are a few things I could... Uh, oh, one other thing. So, sorry. Uh, one other thing is that um, there are times and opportunities, like, for example, the death in a family is a serious, sober moment for a person like that. And your Christian faith can be used there to, to buoy him. An accident that has occurred within the family that you become aware of, your, your interest in that, and, and et cetera, uh, 
uh, sickness, it's another one, family problems or a tragedy, or you know what, even if the economy turns down, your optimism and no, not going into a depression like he would, would be very helpful. Sorry. We have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Hey, good evening. I haven't heard you for a while. How are you doing? How's your wife? I'm doing. Everybody bless. Everybody bless. Good. Amen. Yeah, but on the time, Happy New Year. Thank you. What can we do for you tonight? Yeah, uh, Pastor Mubi, there's a short question. Sure. Uh, about communion. Somebody can communion and and they not live it right, unworthily. What danger they they head into? What what? The if Lord's Supper. taking com- communion unworthily and they know they're not living right, if God and if you're taking the communion, what uh, danger they head into? What? What are they heading to? Every danger of the. Oh, they, oh yeah. <laughs> Paul writes about that in Corinthians chapter eleven, uh, where Paul talks uh, to people that before you even participate in the communion, and we do this all the time. We ask people to examine yourself. And we give our church members at least a th- two or three minutes. If there's anything they need to deal with uh, between a brother or sister, maybe something that they didn't have time to really ponder and think about what they're going to do. So we give them time to, to ask, to search their heart, and uh, to seek forgiveness and pardon, because uh, it's a very serious matter to uh, proceed with the Lord's communion and not recognizing the, the gravity of it and the seriousness of it. Paul talks about that. He said, listen, some of you sleep. And he didn't mean that <laughs> that they were sleeping. <laughs> the word there used, you mean some of them were dead. God yeah. had judicially uh, taken their life because of the indiscretion and the deliberate um, abuse of the Lord's Supper. Then Paul says, some of you are sickly. Uh, and again, that is one of the other things that can happen to a person who is, who is not uh, recognizing the Lord's Supper for what it is. I would say to um, anybody in the church, if you know of a person who is participating in the Lord's Supper and you are conscious of the lifestyle that person is living that is way out, I would recommend that uh, they be confronted by you privately. Uh, you don't help a person by you knowing what's going on and you do nothing about it. Uh, I would I would do that as a person. I would I would say, listen, I need to chat with you at some point in time. I wouldn't do it publicly and expose the whole thing. But certainly, I would let the person become aware of the gravity of... Um, living the way they're doing and acting the way they're doing and what they're engaged in, and yet participating in the Lord's Supper. If they did not give me a proper response, and I see it continued, I would bring it to the attention of the pastor. And I would say to that person, listen, I can't, I can't go on this. My, my, my conscience is bothering me about this matter. And it has come to the point where if you don't deal with it now, I'm going to have to bring it to the pastor, and he's going to have to talk to you about this matter. We are our brother's keeper. And we must not close our eyes to things that people are doing that we know are willfully wrong and will affect the church. Remember what Paul says? If one member suffers, the whole membership suffers. So when you know something is going on in a, a church where somebody is living in an ungodly way, it's having an impact. We are warned. That person may be the arm, the leg, etc., etc. But if you've got gangrene or you've got evil within the, the body, it begins to spread. And you need to bring a halt to it if you can. But again, go to the individual. And if that person doesn't listen to you, take another individual with you who's concerned. And then if they're not listening, you bring it to the past and the church, etc., etc. But it cannot be allowed to continue indefinitely because it's hurting the ministry, it's hurting the church. And uh, we're not helping any person when we close our eyes to wrongdoing. 
Yeah, because I've been I've been talking about it a lot, and nothing happening about it. Well, you need to if you do it, if you do that, and, and you know you got the proof, you know the situation. Uh, tell the per, you know carry another believer, a strong don't carry a per, believer no, that's gonna gossip. That's the worst thing you could ever do. Take a person who can deal in a matter of confidence and say, listen, I need to go meet with this brother because I've asked about a matter, confronted him, he's not responding properly, whatever it is. If he rejects both of you, get the pastor involved. Get the pastor involved. And then, of course, uh, if the pastor can't get something done, the church basically will be involved in that matter. But you cannot allow something to go on that's wrong in a church. It affects the whole ministry, and you become complicit in it as well. It's like I know in a, a guy next door is, um, whatever he's murdering. He's he's uh, he is he's, he's printing money. He's printing money. He's beating his wife. He's abusing his family, and I just I know that, but I remain silent. And then one day I I see a uh, the hearse come and take a body out. I'm I'm complicit in that matter, uh, and, and the same thing with child abuse. I don't know if you even a counselor. Once a counselor is dealing with a minor and there's any kind of abuse, sexual abuse or whatever it is, he has to report that to the government. He just can't close his eye to it. He'd be in lots of trouble legally if he knows it and he doesn't report that. So sometimes when you're counseling young people, young kids, etc., you've got to let them know up front. And people who come to you to share secrets, uh, there are certain secrets you can't keep legally, uh, especially when it comes to things like sexual abuse and uh, incest and so on and so forth. But you got to deal with it, brother. You, can't, you just can't leave it. Once you know it's there, um, do it out of love for, for the individual and ask for something to change. If it doesn't change, bring somebody else in and then let the pastor deal with it. But to leave it like that and it's going to fester and um, it's going to embolden the person to keep on doing what they're doing and who knows how much more damage you can do within the, the assembly. Okay, Pastor. Thank you, God, and thanks for calling. We appreciate that. God bless you. Thank you very much for the call, Brother Williams, and continue encouraging others to tune in to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, the phone line is now open and available. You can call 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text the number, your question to the number 1-268-782-1452. Pastor, I recently heard a message or a section of a message. I didn't stay tuned to a whole long time, and it was not on the lighthouse of a pastor uh, preaching through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Mm -hmm. And it talks about uh, you should eat before you come to the Lord's Supper mm -hmm. and that some were drunk. And he was saying the issue is not that you get drunk. The issue is you need to share with those around you and saying that uh, drinking isn't a problem. Yeah. What is the biblical approach on that? Look, the, the, that is a complete abuse of the Scripture and misinterpretation of the Scripture, quite frankly. It's the abuse of that that Paul is condemning. Uh, that should not be happening in the church, period. That's not what it's about. Uh, most commentators will tell you that before they observed the Lord's Supper, they had something called a love feast, where people would bring things that they would share, etc., etc. That was not the official uh, communion service. But again, um, the idea that, you know, um, you can drink and do this, I, I, I don't know. Uh, we did a program on alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I think people need to listen to that again. The biggest drug problem in the world, in Antigua, in the Caribbean, is not marijuana, it's not crack cocaine. It's the problem of alcoholism. 
That's the major cause of death when it comes to drugs. And how can anybody uh, be part and parcel of that? It's just staggering. And to hear uh, pastors uh, be so lenient and, and, uh, and um, so loose on encouraging this kind of thing is, is, is just beyond me. But that's what the church has become. It's really more of a social club than it is a spiritual ministry. And uh, I don't endorse it. Uh, I think it's a mistake. And I think that uh, pastors ought to be more responsible. There are actually, if you are interested in going back and listening to those episodes the pastor just referenced, there are two full episodes. And that goes back to 2019. The best way, one of the easiest ways to do it is to go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. And once you're on our website, scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's going to be a broadcast microphone, just like the one that I'm sitting behind. When you see that big broadcast microphone on your screen, right in the center of your screen, there's a circle that says podcast. Click on that. By the way, if you're wondering what is a podcast, a podcast is a location where an audio file is put out on the Internet, and then you can go listen to it or download it or share it with their friends on your own timetable. You don't have to be tuned in at exactly 7.30 on Tuesday evening. So go to our website, scroll down until you see the link for podcast, click on that, and then the top link that will pop up is for That's Truth. The latest episode will be there, but there's also a link for the archive, and you're going to be looking for episode 73, uh, excuse me, episode 76 and 77 and those aired in July and August of 2019. A question from a listener, Pastor Murphy, I was recently in town, and it's disgusting to watch the men eyeing women as they walk by. I even had a man step into my pathway in order to turn and stare at a woman as she walked by. I don't expect unsaved men to act as saved individuals, but this is completely inappropriate. How should I respond as a believer? Well, I, <clears throat> I think that, um, as I mentioned before, we are in a sexually lost culture, and it is being primed by the amount of pornography that's available. Um, that is the tragedy of the times in which we live. And what is being accentuated, if you look at whether you, you see any advertising, uh, when you have these shows or whatever it is, it is basically s sex, basically that's what's being said, the body. The, um, I saw one recently with three guys that are, uh, I don't know if there's, I'm going to have some kind of a show here, but they've got uh, their, their shirt unbuttoned and they're showing their abs, etc. All, all that has been, so they're saying basically, wait we, a we minute, the whole emphasis today, <clears throat> the world has gone crazy and mad about sex. And uh, I'm not surprised that when you see women walking down the street, you can out spend some time, any time, just go to town any time and just go somewhere where nobody can observe, just rest against the wall and just observe uh, women walking by and then look at the men. Most of them are iron the, the woman's bottom or her breast, basically. That's what it, they're doing. Again, that's where the emphasis is being placed. Uh, and again, it's because we've become a sexualized society. I think as, as Christians, uh, 
I don't know what we can do other than we ourselves um, not being part of the same process. When you're driving your car and you see a girl on the streets, are you looking through the mirror at the back to see, you know, maybe her figure, whatever it is? You've got to be very careful. You know, Job talked about guarding his eyes and making a covenant with his eyes. I think that's probably the best thing that we can do as believers, that we guard our eyes and make a covenant that we will not be looking at uh, women, uh, if we're men, or uh, 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 um, yeah, and men, if we're women, verse because it goes both ways right now. By the way, it used to be the man pursuing the woman, and <laughs> it's the very opposite. No, it's the women pursuing the men as well. So you've got it on both sides. But as Christians, we have to maintain good biblical morality, and we want decency. And a woman is more than her body. We got to respect uh, that she's value. She's a, a woman of worth and value, and I think we have to treat them that way. And one of the best things we can do ourselves is to avoid pornography. That's one of the best things we can do as Christians: avoid pornography and make sure we're not guilty of the same thing we're accusing the other people about. But pretty much, there's not much more else you can do than f- from what you. I mean, if I was a politician, or I was in some influential government position, I would use my my uh, my clout to get more censorship on some of these things that are being shown on um, the cable television. Uh, I, I That's what I would do. And I think there's nothing wrong in a person who's a, a politician who is a genuine Christian trying to get more censorship and control over these type of things. Uh, but, but uh, and, and of course, you, you'd be charged, if you do that, with um, violating people's liberties. But liberty has limits as well. They must all be form and freedom. You can't have freedom without form. Uh, you can have form and no freedom. You have to balance between form and freedom. So I think that, um, but but other than that, I don't think there's anything else we can do than to, um, to be personally upright in our own dealings, avoid pornography, and then make a covenant with our eyes that we don't be doing this, not be doing the same thing. And then, of course, if you've got younger children, guard them as well from the pornography. Because remember, it's between 9, uh, nine and, and uh, 18, uh, or 9 and 16, I forgot the exact time. This is where the, the most common use of the Internet pornography is that age group. It's not the adults. It's that age group. And I've told people this. I cannot imagine when I was a boy and I knew how... Um, emotion I was and, and how peeved I was and, and, and so on from the terms of, in terms of sexuality. I cannot imagine as a boy if I had that kind of exposure from nine right to, I don't know where I would be today. Yeah. I just don't know. I'll be very, very honest with you. I just don't know. This thing is powerful. Powerful. And anybody that, that's gone through that, that, those age, that age group between nine and, and whatever and uh, discounts this is not being truthful. And this is the age where these people are constantly being bombarded. And that's why you need to control the gadget you give your child, whether it be the cell phone, whether it be the iPad, whether it be the computer. You are inviting evil into your home if you do not control that and monitor that. And you're destroying your kid, uh, whether you know it uh, or not. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.07. Pastor... For the individual who says, okay, pastor, I should avoid pornography, but where do I even start? It, I'm addicted. Well, we're going to deal with that in the next next um, 
topic. I want to deal with sexual addiction, and we'll talk about that. But let me just say, the, the, the best way to start is to, you know, if sewage is coming in into your home, you've got to cut off the sewage. Okay? Uh, you can't just say, okay, sewage is coming in, so I'll just mix it with clean water. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you might dilute it, but it's still going to affect you. And the reason why I'm saying that, if you're listening to truth and you're listening to God's Word, and that's coming into your life, that is not going to be able to just counteract the fact that the sewage is still there. So you've got to learn to cut off. And that's why the Bible says, what? Put off. Put and on. put on, right? That's why the two must work together. So the first thing I would say to the person is, where is this pornography coming from? That's the first thing. Is it the cell phone? Is it the computer? Is it going next door to the neighbor? Uh, Mom has hers controlled. I can't do it. But when I go to them, that's the place. I'm, well, if that's the case, you're going to have to make a, a, a willful decision to cut that off. Dry it up. That's the first thing I would say to you. And then, of course, you've got all these images still in your mind. Now, that's where you need to get the Word in your mind. Uh, and that is where now you have to try to uh, fill your mind with what Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is noble, etc., etc. Begin to change your thinking, but that will take time uh, for thinking. Uh, is it the, the cable television, uh, again, that you're watching? Uh, whatever it is that is... Uh, inviting pornography into your mind, you cannot be helped unless you're willing to cut that out and then begin to transform the mind and renew the mind. And I, I, one of the good things I tell people is this. Um, I, one of the studies I did recently was about something called neuroplasticity. And that is about the fact that the brain is like a network of, of, of um, wires that are wired. And what happens if you are using pornography or you're using a drug, uh, it normally should go to your frontal lobe where you can make a judge, judgment, is this the correct thing to do? But it's like water trying to travel uh, should go a certain direction, but then you get a flood and it, it cuts out its own course. And rather than going where it should be, it's now going in a different direction, and it digs a deeper groove and a deeper groove. That's what happened like in pornography or anything like that. The wonderful thing I found out about recently is that, is that that channel that is now taking the, away the correct direction can be rebuilt. The network of those nerve endings, those neurons, can be, but again, it takes about six weeks. So you have to stop what you're doing, allow the brain uh, to reconfigure itself to the path it used to go before. So we're not hopeless. That's the point I'm making. I used to think that how you ever recover, here's the problem. It's because it takes at least six weeks for the mind to rebuild itself people don't have the discipline to wait six weeks. So what they do, they try it for two weeks and it's not working and they give up. And next time they try it for four weeks and they give up. And they probably keep trying to go forward, back and forth, back and forth, and they seem to lack the willpower to say, listen, I, it requires six weeks of being clean on this matter and allow the brain to rebuild itself, right? Uh, so there's hope. But again, it cannot be done without some kind of discipline in the person's life and uh, the self-will needs to be there and that's where people are so weak today in terms of their will they, they, they just some people can't even control their eating habits that's why you've got all this obesity some people can't control their sexual habits that's why they've got the sexual addiction same thing the, the whole problem is the indiscipline uh, but once that can be put in place the mind and uh, the network of the of the, uh, the 
network within the, the brain, the, what you call like the wiring, can actually be reconfigured, but it takes some time. And of course, if you're going to do that, you need support because you can't do this on your own, Nathan. You need to have somebody to hold you accountable or a few people to hold you accountable to encourage you on this journey. Otherwise, you, you're going to slip back all the time. So it's not an easy task, but it can be done. And um, hopefully in the future, we are hoping that our church would be able to help addicts. As uh, If I might share this with the public, if you give me a minute. We've been waiting for the last 10 years to get some land for the government, which was already um, or, um, identified by the government. Uh, but we want to offer an addiction ministry uh, to the Antiguan public as a gratis service to the Antiguan public. We want to build a, a, a dormitory that would house 25 ladies and 25 men, uh, at least 50 addicts. And we want to make it a gratuitous service, but it's linked to agriculture. And that's the problem. We're trying, we're trying to get five acres of land that the government has or, uh, already authorized, but it has taken us 10 years to this date, and we still don't have the land. Uh, but if we had had that, we would have been able to help so many people uh, already. Uh, and by the way, the, 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 the farming aspect of it will not only be helpful to sustain the people on the compound, but it would enable us to be able to do a lot of uh, social work in terms of helping people who are struggling uh, to to make some provisions for them in terms of what we grow, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't know who's listening, but if you have any political clout, you have any power, you can really help us get this done. This thing needs to be done, and 10 years is a long time, but as the marijuana problem increases in this country, it's not going to decrease, it's getting worse. You're going to need a place where people can recover. That's what we as a church feel is we would love to do, but we can't do it without getting some kind of, of help initially. And that's where the land comes in. We just need the land. We've had people overseas who are willing to help us with the buildings. The problem is the land, and that's what we've been struggling with for the last 10 years. Uh, but I'm just saying, saying all that to say this, that there's hope. There's hope. As a matter of fact, the, the, it's going to be called the Baptist Rehab Center, but the, the, the real name is going to be Elpis. The Elpis is the Greek word for hope. And uh, so I'm just saying to those who are listening, uh, you can recover, but it will take time. But you need discipline and you need a support system. Without that, I don't see how you're going to recover. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.13. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, we would love for you to ask it live on the air by calling one 268 462 Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Here's a question that has come from Anguilla. Pastor, what if a leader or deacon in the church refuses to forgive a brother or sister in the church, but yet they still partake of communion? Is it deacon or a pastor? I think that's very, very, very serious. Uh, I think that the, in my view, uh, the individuals in the church who might be influential, I think they should have a meeting with him. Uh, I, I think that they should explain to him the contradiction and the fact that um, the effect of his ministry is going to be almost minimal because if you're preaching forgiveness and talking about the grace of God, and you yourself are not able to forgive, 
I'm not sure if you have a ministry in that church, etc. So I think that it would be good and proper to sit down and talk with him and explain to him or uh, what a person is, the ramifications of that type of behavior, and especially if the congregation is aware that he has an unforgiving spirit. And I think that maybe uh, he should step down for a period of time until he can somehow uh, get this thing settled. But I don't think it helps the church for him to be in that kind of a position, and it's known uh, yet to be preaching. I, I, I think most people would turn off. Uh, you know, here I am, the pastor, don't forgiving, and I can't forgive. I mean, how, how do I minister? How do you listen to me, to be honest with you? So I think it may be proper if he's a deacon, maybe to ask him to take a break and to do some serious introspection and try to get this thing uh, resolved. Now, remember that forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation at first. Don't ever forget that. The ideal for the Christian is that after we forgive, there's complete reconciliation. But reconciliation is something that uh, comes about with trust over time. So somebody can do you something, you can forgive them, but the restoration of the relationship to to, to be normalized uh, is not going to happen, in some cases, immediately. Uh, It will take some time. But that would be the objective to work towards in the long term. But the actual act of forgiveness and so on and so forth, I think that... um, that would be my recommendation that some senior people in the church have a private meeting with the individual, explain to him the uh, how it look, looks, the ramifications, what he's doing, and the fact that he's no longer effective, and then um, try to help that person as much as possible, maybe even do a study with him. Let's, let's study forgiveness in the Bible. As a pastor, let's do that. As a deacon, let's see what the Bible says about that. Um, but something needs to be done if it is well known I don't think it helps the church in any way if that uh, kind of a unforgiving spirit continues. We have a caller. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, um, Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. No, we see. I was listening to. I was listening to a Caribbean radio lighthouse. Yes, sir. And they were advertising this program on the radio as the truth, and this lady said they could even tell you where God is from. Uh, what was that? She said they could even say to you where God came from, where God is from then. Do you have that answer? Do you have the question there? So you want to know where God is from? Yeah. Okay. God is from eternity. As simple as that. Uh, Somebody made us. Somebody created all of this. Somebody made us. Somebody created the whole universe everything, man. Pardon me? Somebody made us and made the whole world, the whole universe. Right. So whoever did that is the, the eternal God. And, That's right. Yeah. But she, 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 she said they could even tell you where God came from, where God is from. Because I know nobody really knows where God came from. God is up here, and the earth and created everything, and nobody knows where he's from. Well, Isn't that uh-huh. well again, uh, uh, an eternal God is a God that always existed. God is not a, a, a human being. He's not a limited creature. He's an infinite, infinite creature. Uh-huh. But you see, the way I advertise on the radio, I said I was going to ask the question anyway, because I, I don't like something to keep on my mind and yeah. don't have no idea about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. All I can say to you that uh, from a biblical point of view, uh, God has always existed. He's from all eternity. And what is, is what he has created. And that is the, the, the biblical teaching that man was made in his image and man was 
uh, you know, man was created in the sense man rebelled against God. Uh, man is uh, now alienated from God, estranged from God. And all of man's problems that man has today, all the evil that we have in the world, stem from the fact that man has a sinful nature. And it's to deal with that problem of sin that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to forgive us our sins, but not only that, to impute His righteousness to us, so that even though we are still sinners until we, the Lord returns and completely transforms our body, He can still deal with us uh, for the fact that we, He sees us in Christ's righteousness. That is the biblical doctrine of justification uh, and so on. But that, uh, again, the only other alternative would be that we, we, we just happen to be here, but every sensible person would know that uh, the complexity of just one single cell in the body is more complex than any computer that you have. And nobody can believe the computer could just happen. And remember that the information in the cell is not random information, it's logical information. In DNA, for example, they've discovered that the amount of information is almost like the, the, the volumes in uh, Britannica Cyclopedia. Orderly information. So an intelligent being had to create what is. Evolution is the biggest hoax that the world has ever embraced. And they only embrace that hoax because they want to exclude God and accountability to God. But um, God is from eternity. And all that we have is the Word of God to tell us exactly. We've got to make a decision uh, whether we embrace the Scriptures and what the Bible teaches or we go our own way and listen to men. That's the choice that we made. We just opened to those two choices. Um, so that's my view on the matter. Thank you for your question. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening to That's Truth and encourage others to listen also. You can call and ask your question live on the air by dialing 1-268-462-7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Last week... Pastor Murphy began a, I'll call it a mini-series here on That's Truth, on the topic of rape. Pastor, for those who weren't tuned in last week, and you covered seven questions during last week's episode, can you kind of catch us up so that we can hit the ground running? Well, the first thing we did, basically, was to give a general introduction to the whole problem of the sexuality of society, and that we are now in a, what I call a neo-paganistic age of eros. And that is where everything has been sexualized, and we are a culture now that is uh, lost sexually uh, in terms of the culture's concern. Um, the other thing I talked about is the fact that when we talk about rape, has to do with the fact how we define it, and this very simple de- definition was a forceful act of non-consensual sex. And the key word there is force. It's against the person's will. And the other word is, is the is non-consensual. This means that it's an involuntary act and it's a violent act. It's an aggressive act against the person. Rape is not sex acted out aggressively. It's aggression acted out sexually. That's what it is. Uh, and, and that is why it is, must be seen as a violation of personal rights. And a person is not uh, raped because of their sexiness. They're raped because of their vulnerability. The person is taken... Uh, advantage. The thing that we also talked about is that the motivation of rape basically is to dominate, uh, to humiliate, to get even. You know, I wanted this from you, didn't give it to me, I'm going to take it from you, basically. That's what it is. Uh, there may be occasions where uh, um, somebody is dating somebody and they get involved physically and 
in that moment, uh, the person becomes from a Jekyll and Hyde personality and loses it and uh, force rapes ex- the person, etc. That that happens. But generally speaking, uh, a, a rape is a person to dom- trying to dominate, humiliate, and, and get even. Uh, in terms of the perpetrator, um, date rape or quintus rape is 60 to 80% of all rapes. In other words, uh, rape victims know the person who raped them, and it's either somebody closely related to the family or somebody that they're dating themselves. 50% of the offenders of the rape of females under age 18 is their boyfriend. Uh, that is a, a damning statistic of, of telling girls you've got to be very, very careful who you go out with because um, this is what could happen to you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, where rape occurs most, we talk about in the house, in the hotel, the car, the apartment, uh, the beach, the area, wherever you are, private with a person, uh, and you're having some kind of physical contact and intimacy, that, that won't happen. How serious is rape? Um, we talk about one in four females and one in six males will be sexually assaulted. Uh, for every rape we mention uh, that's reported, there are 10 others that are not reported. That's a staggering figure. Uh, and rapists hardly ever rape once. On an average, a rapist will rape seven people on an average. Um, in sexual molestation, the number of victims per offender is, could be as high as 50. Uh, so I give you a statistic. These are people that are out of it, they're turbo-starved, they're uh, charged, they're mentally imbalanced, whatever you want to call it, but um, they're obsessed with uh, sexual violence. Um, approximately 60 to 80% of all sexual assaults are committed by someone, I mentioned, uh, who knows the victim, and 50% of rapists of females under 18, I mentioned, are their boyfriend. Uh, most rapes, 70% are planned. It's right. not planned. It's not. It's not an accident. It's planned. It's. It's. Um, I'm going to take you out. I am going to try to get what I want from you, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to get it. But it's planned, and and that is why we go a certain place because I intend to know what I'm going to do, and I have to get you in a place of isolation. Most rape offenders are either married or actively engaged in with some. Um, consensual sex already. So it's not as though they're starved for sex, basically. Say that again. Most rapists are either married or actively involved in consenting sex with another person. So it's not that they're starved, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're addict, addict, addicted to it. Over 90% of all sexual assaults involve persons of the same race. So it's not a racial thing, no, because 90% of all sex, sex, sexual assaults are the same race. Rapists engage in a, a selection process, often eliminating some women until they find a suitable victim. And that victim is normally perceived to be vulnerable. Uh, so it's not a person's provocative dress that provokes uh, rape. They just seem to be a vulnerable person that I, I, I can overpower them. I can, uh, I, can, I can take from them what I want. Uh, they're not going to fight back. Uh, other victims of sexual assault have ranged from 4 to 92. Uh, rape has been called the tragedy of youth because most rape cases occur either in childhood or in adolescence. And that is between 5 and 12 and between 13 and 18. That's where most rapes occur. Uh, one study of victims 
a forcible rape by age, uh, this is the data. Uh, those less than 11, 29%. Those between 11 and 17, 32%. So that gives you a total of 61% of all rape is between uh, less than 11 and up to 17 years old. Between 17 and 24, 22%. Between 25 and 29, 7%. And uh, above 29, you get 6%. So that gives you the idea where the real problem is. It's between uh, 6 and 18 is where most rapes occur. And if I was a young person listening to the program, dating somebody or going somewhere, uh, that should uh, cause me to be very, very cautious who I go with, where I go, et cetera, et cetera, because 61% of all rapes are between that age group. Um, most rape victims, this is significant, Nathan, do not sustain serious physical injuries. Seventy uh, percent, there's no physical injury. Twenty-four percent, there are minor physical injury, and four percent are serious injury. I'll, I'll explain why that is important in another part of the program. Uh, because when you're talking to a rapist and you're trying to help a person, um, one of the things about men is that they want details about the sex, what happened sexually. But that's not what bothers the rapist. It's more the terror and the fear and the trauma. So if you are trying to probe to find out a little more about the sexual acts and what really happened, you can actually uh, send that person into some kind of depression because that's not their concern. They, they figure, why, why, you, why, why is this your area? Their main concern is the violence and the terror and the trauma that they have to live with. Uh, the balance of their lives, and you're wanting all you're concerned about is the actual sexual act itself. So that's why it's important to understand that in 70% of the cases, they're not normally uh, damage, physical damage. Uh, so that's where we are, uh, Nathan, uh, and we can move on from to the next question you may have. So that was a lot of lot of facts and painted a very uh, serious uh, picture of the situation of rape. What kind of impact does rape have on the victim? And I know this is a very sobering topic. In fact, there may be someone who's just tuned in and said, Pastor Murphy, why are you even discussing this on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse? Well, uh, this is a subject that is taboo that people don't talk about, and there are people who suffer, uh, and uh, people who who just wish that they could get some kind of catharsis by really uh, sharing with the public exactly what's involved. And not only that, people who have been victims of rape uh, are very concerned, especially if they have other family members, that the same thing could happen to them. Uh, And uh, this kind of information is helpful to help people to take certain safeguards to ensure that this doesn't happen. Because if it can happen to a family member, uh, certainly it can happen to another family member. So I think it's important that uh, we talk about this subject and and understand what the person really is going through. And then, of course, we'll talk about how to help that person uh, who's gone through a rape situation. Uh, We'll talk about that later. So there is a a therapeutic um, interest as well to bring about healing by those who might know a victim and to suggest to them how they can help that person. Uh, and that in itself um, should help the, the individual. But talking about the the uh, impact, um, it is profound, it is devastating. And while the damage sometimes can be physical, but as I said, only 4%, the real damage is the emotional and psychological pain 
and the terror that uh, the person faces is, is something far deeper than just the physical. Uh, it is very hard for a person who's been raped to feel secure anymore. Uh, they just don't, don't feel safe. And especially if it was done uh, in a home, again, no window uh, is safe, no door is safe. They will not want to put locks on most and everything because you feel unsafe, and that is a psychological scar. Um, fear of men uh, is a reality because remember that most people that rape, are raped are raped by either a boyfriend or a person they know, a family friend, whatever it is. And, of course, in most cases, it's men raping women, not women raping men. So that creates a fear of men and distrust of men, etc. But the victim... I experienced a vast range of negative emotions and trauma. And um, let me just list a few of these, um, not in any particular order, but of course the devastating feeling of humiliation. To be overpowered and to be brutally taken advantage of, uh, you lose a sense of control. And there'd be nothing more uh, devastating uh, than to feel that level of humiliation, shame. Uh, loss of dignity, loss of worth, loss of value. Uh, your whole self-concept is shattered. Uh, the idea of powerlessness, that you could do absolutely nothing. You had no power whatsoever to stop this. I mean, you were so overpowered, even if you fight, Nathan. Now, I've never been in a powerless situation, but I, I'm, I'm kind of claustrophobic. Uh, if I'm going to an area and uh, it is closing on me, I almost panic uh, because I don't have any control. I can't breathe properly, et cetera, et cetera. Now imagine somebody uh, holding you down and no matter how you struggle, or maybe they hold a gun to your head or a knife to your throat and you just have to totally surrender. That in itself is a devastating sense of feeling of helplessness or hopelessness. And, and then, of course, um, self-blame. A lot of people who go through this um, said that they should have known better, they should have picked up certain signs. Uh, uh, so they, 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 there's a cloudiness that begins to happen and they now begin to feel guilty that they, they probably were part of the whole thing. And of course the devil play, play tricks on you a lot of times by accusing you of a lot of things. So this, this begins to happen. Guilt is another big one. Insecurity. Uh, a sense of inadequacy. Uh, uh, an aloneness and a loneliness that is just w very, very weird that nobody fully understands what I've been through, uh, etc. It's like I got to bear this thing by myself, etc. Um, anger, uh, that's another thing um, of being violated. Uh, depression, that's another dark side, which is this sadness and this sense of, of hopelessness, nobody would want me anymore, I've been damaged property, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, feeling of dirtiness and ugliness and worthlessness is not uncommon for a person who's been raped to go on the shower and just shower and shower and shower and shower and shower and shower and, and soap and soap and soap and soap and soap because it's a psychological thing that they're going through. Uh, and the other one is blaming others uh, who they feel that should have been more alert they might have seen them with the person or be aware of certain things uh, feeling betrayed by God especially if you're a Christian how could God allow something like this to happen to me uh, that is a difficulty that's why when you're dealing with people like this you don't start preaching to them all things work together for good <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is not one time for that uh, and then um, a sense of emptiness 
there's like a, a hole in your soul that no amount of counsel or advice can fill. It's just that, that sense of emptiness. Uh, grief, uh, suicidal thoughts uh, come in as well. Nightmares, flashbacks, uh, this happens to you. Uh, and then the a lot of fear that is there, uh, Nathan. And then a real need to be understood. For someone to really, really understand the devastation, which is not easy because you yourself are not raped. So it's very, very difficult to connect. But that gives you the, the psychological mindset of a person who has gone through the damage that is done, the, the psychological damage, the emotional damage, the trauma that is there. And this is not something you overcome day or week or two weeks. Sometimes it takes years before you can really, really heal and rebuild trust. That is why, Nathan, it is so impactful on a person and it is so evil and so wicked and so ungodly. And that's why when I hear a rapist is given such a light sentence. I, I don't know how any judge with a conscience uh, could do that. Uh, and I think the penalty ought to be severe enough uh, that it, it shows an indication of the justice and the pain that was caused to the individual. Uh, but very often, uh, the favor seem to be the one for the, the criminal as opposed to the, the victim. And that's, that's one of the big problems. Will a victim of rape carry some of that baggage into their marriage? Oh, yeah. That, that is one of the big, big, big problems, Nathan. Uh, uh, sometimes it's not immediately because they're – how do you tell somebody that you're dating who doesn't know you raped, that you got raped? How do you do that? That's something you hide. That's something you keep in secret. That's like one of the family secrets that nobody tells. So what happens? You're dating. You're afraid that if you let the person know, they'll drop you. You're afraid that you'll never get married. Uh, uh, you're afraid that if you tell them uh, – they may not believe the story. They might think that you were complicit in the whole thing. So what happened remains a secret for a long, long time. So you go into marriage. And then, like, it happens to some people, just out of the blue after being married for a few years, your husband touched you a certain place, touched you certain ways, and this whole thing comes back like a complete overwhelming flashback, right? And now it interferes with your intimacy because it's like... Whatever he does is what the person has done to you, right? And, and that now begins to affect the marriage. And, it, and of course, intimacy is vital to marriage, maintenance of marriage. So uh, when that begins to happen, a lot of cases, the person can't function until they brought this thing to a closure. And then sometimes with closure, it means confronting the person who did the rape, right? That is not easy. But that's sometimes the only way you get the closure, uh, but it, it can affect marriage, and uh, sometimes a person needs counseling to try to, 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 uh, to deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when the, the thing makes sense to get the person to understand what is happening, why it's happening, and of course the husband has to be very understanding. This might be a period that the person is going through, and you need to be uh, not as aggressive sexually as you, you, you would be, not to be as demanding as you used to be, to be very, very understanding and patient and loving and compassionate. And uh, over time, as I said, the, the, the mind can heal. The problem, let me just show you something like that, Nathan. Take, take that you, the person been raped. They didn't tell the person. They've got that in the mind. It's never been resolved. They've got it. It's like, it's like that etch that is still there. It's never been dealt with. Where the, 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 the network has never been rebuilt, basically. Now, after a period of time, something triggers it. It goes back into that cycle. 
the same way there's healing for drugs, there's healing for this, there's healing for that. But again, it requires openness on the whole matter. That's why, you know, I never really understood why people talk about things. You know, and, and the thing I like about American society, my society, it's an open society. Caribbean is a hush-hush society. So a lot of our damage is not healed. We keep those things in for a long time. But the catharsis is opening up and then realizing I'm not the only person. It, it helps you to know that you're not the only person that this has happened to, right? And then, of course, you get a support group, a system that people who've been through that, who can support you, et cetera, et cetera. We have been very deficient within the Caribbean of, of, of having those kind of ministries to these kind of people who are hurting. And I think that we are maturing and developing, and I think we are becoming more attuned to the fact that help is needed in these areas and more openness is needed in discussing these things and confronting them. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you hear doing the teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church on Rowan Henry Street here in Antigua. We have 20 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. Still time for you to call in with your question. If you have a question, we would love for you to call and ask it live on the air. And you can do that by dialing one 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 782 one four five four. You can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then in your comment section on your device, you can comment your question or your concern, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy live on the air, as these other methods will also. Again, only 19 minutes left in this episode, so hurry up and send in your question so that Pastor can answer it from a biblical worldview. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to claim to be a believer in order to ask a question. You can ask your question, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical perspective. Pastor, rape, you mentioned, is kind of a taboo topic is the Bible practical? And the reason I'm asking that, does the Bible touch on this topic of rape? Yeah, there, I was thinking about that. And uh, there, are ancient, there are two cases of rape in the Scripture that I can think about. No, three cases. Um, there's one with Tamar, where her brother became infatuated with her and um, tell, told her that he was sick, pretended he was sick to get her to come to the room, and then when he got there, he raped her. Uh, that's a case of rape. The other one was um, when the Dinah was raped by, um, I can't remember the exact um, sons of, of uh, in the book of Genesis, though, she, that was the um, the daughter, uh, I'm trying to remember the two brothers, I think it was Simeon and Levi, uh, sister Dinah was raped by one of the uh, foreigners within that country and then <laughs> they went about and made a, a, a pact with the people to get them circumcised and when they were circumcised and they were sore they couldn't do anything they slaughtered everybody but that was a result of rape they thought it was rape and then there's another case in the book of Judges where a lady was raped throughout the night and then the Israelis took her body and chopped it in parts 
and sent it to every tribe and said, we're going against these people who've done this. So there are three, at least three instances of, of rape in the, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Now, we're not, you know, the Bible just records events. Uh, it doesn't necessarily deal with treatment in terms of how to deal with that. But the reality is that rape is not something that just started. It goes back way in the, in, in the, it's just like, I was just thinking, Nathan, about murder. First murder began in Genesis chapter 4. I mean, just think about that. And there are only three people on planet Earth, two, four people. That is Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. That's four people. But yet, it, sin is so horrible and so impactful that within a short space of time, a brother is able to kill another brother because out of jealousy. But that gives you an idea of the power of sin, uh, etc. Imagine what it is now 6,000 years, <laughs> yeah. how much worse it has become. But, um, yeah, it is mentioned in the Scriptures and... There are biblical principles we will talk about when we talk about how to deal with, with rape that I think are, are relevant. Uh, for healing to take place, you're going to need a support system. You're going to have to people, but not only that, uh, you're going to need to have a lot of reassurance, a lot of affirmation of the worth of the individual. Uh, and then forgiveness is a big part of that. And the other thing, of Nathan, is to uh, see how... In other words, you begin to enter into what I call the sufferings of Christ, to see that he was abused physically as well. Uh, he was betrayed, because that's what it is, was, was, was a betrayal. He was physically, mentally, emotionally abused. Uh, so God understands suffering. And then that's why the book of Hebrews says, we come boldly before the throne of grace, because we have not a high priest who cannot be touched for our feelings. And that's where the one can come to the Lord, he understands abuse, he understands betrayal, he understands brutality, and that's where you can get a connection in prayer and intercession, etc. But that's for another another program. Stay tuned, because obviously Pastor will get to that topic, whether it's this week or next week, Lord willing, of how to uh, provide healing in this very difficult, horrible situation. If you have experienced rape or you know someone who has. But before we get there, Pastor, can you elaborate a little bit on the different kinds of fear that the victim may experience? Yeah, a lot of people think that, you know, the idea of physical abuse is that there's fear of the physical part of it. But that fear is much more widespread and much more pervasive uh, than just fear of the physical abuse. For example, um, different types of fears. Um, the victim, I mentioned a moment ago, begins to generalize what happened to them. And because a man has committed that offense, they now generalize and they begin to fear men. Uh, they have a very hard connecting with men. Some of these people find it very hard dating afterwards. Uh, even think of marrying afterwards, etc., etc., etc. They become very suspicious of men. Number two is that they fear the retaliation of the offender. And what I mean by that, um, especially if charges have been brought against the individual, uh, they fear that there will be some kind of retaliation by that individual. And often, by the way, uh, that individual is still out because he has to be charged and sometimes he can get on bail. Uh, so that kind of fear, uh, fear of um, facing the offender. Um, if that person has been charged and then he's been given uh, on bond and he's out and she's living in the same village as, as he is, 
she might meet him on the bus because he's out now. He's out on bail. Uh, it might be at work or, or some other place. But that's that, or, or, that, that fear of the reaction from her family and friends that she wouldn't be believed, uh, you know, uh, and feel that sometimes they might blame her for what happened. But why did you go there? Uh, why you didn't pick this up before, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can begin to create doubt in her mind, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she may be afraid that the family might take the law into their own hand. Uh, I mean, I have a granddaughter there. You know, Ellie is my thing. Be honest with you, Nathan. I don't know if somebody would rape her at her age. She's only four years old. I can't tell you what I would, would do or wouldn't do. But you can actually lose a moment and, and do something very, very drastic. So I can see where a, a father has a daughter he has treasured her. He's done everything for her. And she's now at that age where she's blossoming. And then suddenly she's raped. The pain she has, the emotion she has, to, to think of she having to deal with that, I could see that a person can take the law to do one. And I think that sometimes they fear that confidentiality will be broken. And by that, by telling friends what have happened and family what have happened, et cetera, et cetera, that... Those friends will have friends who will have friends who will have friends. Before you know it, everybody knows about what has happened. I think that is a fear. Fear of becoming pregnant. By the way, only about 5% of those who are raped become pregnant. Okay, But that's a real living fear. Not only that I'm raped, but could I be pregnant? And, and does that justify abortion? No, that doesn't justify it. Two, two wrongs don't make a right. And uh, I don't think that if life is allowed by God, we ought to protect that life. Now, whether or not the person should uh, um, care for that child, and, and so, but I think that child can be put up for adoption. Uh, I don't think we should penalize. Nathan, I'm, I am alive today because I was conceived. If my mom had aborted me, I would not be here. I'm a person, okay? So how you look at it, <laughs> I'm a person. I think that's how we need to look at it. And I, I, that person is not responsible for what happened. They didn't rape the woman. So why then should that person not be allowed to live? That's what I'm thinking. But many, many times because of the stigma, people will see. You can't get pregnant without people seeing. Well, she wasn't, she's not married. Uh, she's not her husband. Where's your boyfriend? And then you begin to know she got raped. That's a very difficult thing to handle. No question about that. But I don't think the answer is to allow one sin to cause you to commit another sin. Uh, life comes from God. Fear of AIDS. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before uh, on the program, there are now 24 STDs out there that once you've been raped, you wonder which one of these could this person have had. Because remember, the average rapist has at least seven victims. So, And, and as I said, they're normally married or they're already having a relationship with other people. So think of the complication of that now, that you become aware that this is what a rapist is like. You would be concerned uh, with the incidence of AIDS. Fear of the anniversary of the attack. Every time that year or that date comes around, that month, it's like repeat. It's like a, a memory you wish you could just escape, but it is there. It's like your birthday now. It's, just, it's like a mark on the calendar. You fear that day coming because it just brings back all the trauma that happens. Uh, fear of being alone. Uh, how do you, how do you, uh, having lost your power of control, you're, you're afraid of being alone 
at home. You're afraid alone of being alone at work. If you have to work extra hours, you're afraid of alone of being in a car by yourself. Uh, all these type of fears, fear of even being alone in the church building now by itself, right? So there's a fear that begins to um, really pervade. And then fear of trusting others. The person that has raped me is either my boyfriend, a close family member, or somebody I know fairly well. So how, now, how, how, how can I trust anybody after that? So that's a fear. I, I, I don't know who to trust. Right? I trusted this guy. thought he was a good friend. Then look what he's done to me. Fear of sexual dysfunction or desirability. And that's what I'm talking about. We talked about a moment ago that um, you can't function sexually within a marriage as you get these flashbacks, etc., etc. And then uh, once that person knows that I've been raped, will I be sexually desired anymore? Uh, you know, that that's a reality because for a woman, two things matter to her. Her physical appearance and her, her sexuality, to be honest. Is she sexually attractive? That is important to her. So that, that diminishes her self of worth if that doesn't happen. Um, other fears may be based on various circumstances like fear of going places at night, uh, fear of answering the door when the doorbell rings, uh, you know, fear of um, the repairman who's coming to fix the refrigerator, but I'm home alone. No, no that never was a fear before. Everybody coming alone now, I'm wondering if the fear of staying in a room or hotel or motel by myself if I'm a, I'm a traveling salesman or I'm engaged in some activity where I have to travel overseas, etc., etc. Um, these are multiple fears. If you just look at it, uh, how do you <laughs> how do you counteract these fears? How do you live with them on a daily basis? How do you function? So the trauma, the 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 emotional um, pain that is there, is something that she has to live with day by day, week by week, moment by moment, and this is why it's so catastrophic when a person is actually raped. It it, it is totally totally devastating to her well-being. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.53. Just a few minutes left in this episode. If you hurry up and send in your question, we can still get it in this topic. You can WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, for the individual who's saying... I experienced rape years ago, or maybe it was last week. Can God still use me? Uh, I, I think I've told the story about my wife and her abuse as a young child uh, in her home and how the Lord has turned around and used that as a ministry that has helped so many people within the Baptist circle in the Caribbean. Uh, but it is only when she came out and shared what had happened that emboldened people to come on and say, you know what, that happened to me too, that happened to me too. She was shocked, to be honest with you, of how many uh, people been through the same thing. Remember, Nathan, that today, one in every four woman, women have gone through some kind of sexual abuse, one in four. This is in the secular world, the church, or everywhere? This is general. general. This is general, right? I remember people who are coming into the, the church are coming in from the world as well. Right. Uh, someone has said that if you, I think I told you last time, if when somebody walks into the church, you give every fourth person 
a, a, a slip of paper, and then after they get in, say that I gave you, who I gave the paper, stand up, and then say to the congregation, that's about, uh, out of this congregation, how many people have been abused? That's a shocker, to be honest with you, but that's general speaking. That uh, <coughs> tells you clearly that it's a, a big problem. But I would say, um, Nathan, that the Bible tells us in the book of Corinthians that God comforts us in all our trouble, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted us. And here's the point. We, we, we've gone through a, a trauma, rape, and we get help from that in terms of <coughs> getting restoration. We're able to finally accept what happened and <coughs> get healing from it. There's no more bitterness. There's no more seeking revenge. Uh, there's just that I am forgiven the person moving on my life. That person uh, can be used so much to help other people. The thing about it, people are hiding these things. It, it's secretive. But to have somebody to come out and say, this is how the Lord has healed me. The Lord would use the same comfort that was used to comfort me in my own dilemma now to be able to minister to other people. So it, the answer to that is very, very uh, positive and affirmative that people who've been through these type of traumas and these kind of problems become some of the best counselors. I can counsel in this, but again, there's a dimension that I don't understand because I'm a man and I've been through what it is to be traumatized sexually. Uh, but I, I should be, if I had in my repertoire of references somebody I knew who had been through this kind of thing, I could recommend that person to say, listen, I've done enough for you, but I believe if you talk to this person, they'll help you in far better ways than I can because they've been through it, they understand it. That's what I do with my wife when somebody has told me that they've been abused. can help them, but I said, if you really, really want to talk to somebody who's been through that, here's my wife. You'll talk to her. Um, so definitely it creates... Remember this. In my, I tell people this, Nathan. What happens to me or to you is not just about me. It's always about how God will use that event to be able to help people who are going to, going to go through similar situations. We live in a sinful world. And the only way that we can help people sometimes is that we ourselves have faced certain issues and we're able to climb out of those issues successfully and recover and then become an agent of recovery for those who are going through this thing. But definitely, it creates opportunities. Like I, I tell people when I'm counseling about uh, marriage, marriages that are going on the rocks, I tell them this often, Nathan. I said, listen, I wish that you guys would struggle and fight through this, whatever it is, and heal your marriage and make it into something beautiful. Because as a counselor, I need people that I can say to you, listen, I've spoken to, the, I've dealt with a situation before, and I've seen wonderful healing take place, and I want to refer you to this couple. Uh, go and sit down with that person, that couple, and see how they were able to be healed, because you're going through the same thing. The problem is that we don't, I don't have that. And here's why. People jump ship too soon when they're having marital problems. They're, like, they're looking for an excuse for divorce, right? And I think that is part of the, 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 uh, the problem of even marital counseling when you're trying to help people. We need people who can who've healed, who can now be help other people to heal themselves. That's the dilemma that we currently find ourselves in. 
in the last minute, and I know it's probably not fair to ask you this question with one minute, but for the parent who says, Pastor, I have a child, maybe a young child, maybe a child in their teens, what can I do to protect them as much as possible, protect them from this horrible situation of rape? I would just say to you, sit down with your child, explain to them what has happened to other people, and put, uh, explain to them why you put in certain rules and regulations, certain boundaries in place. It's for their welfare and for their protection. Affirm uh, their value, love them, care for them, have affection for them. But again, you as a parent are the adult and you are trying to explain to them what you're trying to do to protect. I just think that you need to do that and explain that to them. It should be very helpful to your, to your child. In the last 10 seconds, at what age should you have that conversation? I don't know if I can give you a particular age. I think as the child grows and develops and matures, I think you should use your judgment. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.